Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, we're doing something we haven't done in a while. We are going to be talking about a book that you and I both really liked. (laughs) People are going to go back into the archive, Jennifer, and look at all of the recent episodes we've done about books and then wonder which one you or I hated because of that comment you just made. That was not my point at all. My point was that, one, we haven't talked about a book for a while, but two, I think we both just love this book so much. I saw you tweeting about it, but I think we were both like a little bit jealous that we wish that this was the kind of book that we had written either together or separately. (laughs) Yeah, I did experience a little bit of jealousy. Uh, It was a good idea and it was really well executed. And I'm really excited that we are going to have its author with us here on the show. Well, now everybody's dying to know, who's the author? What's the book? Okay, okay. (laughs) His name is John Shelton, and the book is called The Education Myth, How Human Capital Trumped Social Democracy. And John has one of the coolest titles that I have seen in academia. He's Associate Professor and Chair of Democracy and Justice Studies, which I just think is so rad. He's also involved with so many other groups, including being Vice Chair of the City of Green Bay's first ever Equal Rights Commission, and sits on the Board of Directors for the Labor and Working Class History Association. I mean, it's like, I he had me at hello. Well, I think people can already tell that this is going to be a love fest, so let's go ahead and get it started. Okay, now to the main event. You already know that our guest is John Shelton, and that we absolutely love his new book, The Education Myth. And you should know that both my co-host and I got very excited as we read it. I was inspired to write a review of the book for Jacobin that I'll include in this episode's reading list for our Patreon supporters. And Jack, well, he was inspired to ask a lot of questions. In many ways, this is the story of the dog that didn't bark. And that's not really the focus of what you do here in the book, but it's absolutely at the core of what the book is about, right? That this is the story of why we don't have the kinds of political options on the table that might actually make people's lives better. And I'd love to start there. That's fascinating because I don't think I've ever, you know, heard anybody in sort of thinking about this book quite put it that way, but that's really what it is. And, you know, what I say in the intro is that this book is really the political history of an idea. And so how is it that, you know, we have this really kind of mythical thinking about education that just getting the right, not even just education, but the right kind of education, investment in human capital can kind of magically overcome all of the, you know, structural, economic and racial inequalities that exist in our society. And so it it really is the story of how there's a kind of tension between the social democratic ideal that runs through the course of American history and then it is, you know, sort of made most prominent during the New Deal and, and the couple of decades after that, and how that idea competes 
with the education myth and how the education myth sort of chokes off all the other kinds of alternatives. And so in that sense, that's absolutely what's going on here. What I'm trying to explain is how the common sense thinking about what we should do about things like economic inequality gets basically destroyed by this mythological thinking about education, more specifically human capital. One of the things that struck me while reading the book was the notion that maybe the best politics with regard to trying to address inequality and the lack of economic opportunity for people is a politics of magical thinking that suggests to people that what we can do is lift all boats, that folks at the bottom can be raised up in terms of their economic outcomes without any cost to those at the top. And I thought that that was crystallized really beautifully in a line of yours where you suggest that the promise was, and I'm quoting here, economic prosperity for all without any tough choices. Where we need to take this back to is the 1970s because you have this real push for meaningful social democratic change. And it's coming from a lot of different quarters. Check out the Democratic Party platform in 1976 sometime because a jobs guarantee, the right to a job in the context of massive unemployment was central in the Democratic Party platform. And you had major players in the party, people like Hubert Humphrey, senator from Minnesota, and Augustus Hawkins, co-founder of the Congressional Black Caucus who represented Watts. But you also have social activists like Coretta Scott King who are saying this jobs guarantee, a robust version of Humphrey Hawkins, is Martin's legacy. This is how we actually solve economic inequality and racial inequality, by the way, in the United States. And the Democratic Party under Carter, and, and I point out in the book, because more sort of professional class people who have bought into the idea of meritocracy are, are driving the party, moves in a very different direction. And Carter, like literally says in his 1978 State of the Union address, we just have to expect government to do fewer things. The education myth is a history of an idea, but it's also a story about the transformation of the Democratic Party at a time when Ronald Reagan and his call for less government was ascendant. Democrats moving from that point forward took the message that, oh, well, Reagan's winning all these elections. We have to do something drastically different. The reality was they were still winning congressional elections. And the message that I think they should have taken from that is, no, let's actually double down on a version of social democracy that would improve people's lives, like not do what Carter did and not keep sort of going in that direction. Instead, the Democratic Leadership Council, the Atari Democrats in the 80s pushed the party toward this sort of light version of Reagan conservatism. In fact, Jesse Jackson called the DLC Democrats for the leisure class and to sort of point out that these are professional class Democrats who are really not solving anybody's problems. And so when you get to Clinton and all these other folks, they're offering a version of politics that is very palatable because you don't have to talk about changing any structures. You don't have to make the wealthy angry. You can essentially promise that nothing will have to change if everybody just gets the right education. And it's actually ludicrous, right? I mean, this idea, if, if our economy is a meritocracy and we're pushing for more competition and the idea is we want to you know, move people into the middle class, you can't have a competition without some people losing. You just can't. Jimmy Carter, of course, would go down to defeat to none other than Ronald Reagan, whose campaign pitch was that if we just got government out of the way, then America would be great again. It was a message that many Democrats internalized. 
the party just continues to move in that direction. So Clinton comes into office and runs on a, on a platform that basically says education and human capital is central to the prosperity of American workers in a global economy. And then just makes that global economy even more brutal by negotiating NAFTA over the objections of organized labor. It, in so many ways, moves the party away from this trajectory in which it's like, hey, let's actually think about possibilities that will impact and make working people's lives better. But that comes with maybe angering rich people or employers, right? It's a very different trajectory for the party and so problematic. To me, it explains so much of you know where our politics have gone and why things have become so dire in this country. And of course, one of the things that results from this, as you note in the book, is the cleaving of the white working class from the Democratic Party. But for those of us who are thinking often first and foremost about schools, there's something else that you explain here, which I think is really important. And that is the inspiring of a backlash among working class whites against education, specifically higher education. And it's a strange thing for some folks to be observing anybody saying college is for elites, right? We don't support that. It certainly is not a message that has been in currency over the past several generations. And I think that what you outline in the book really clearly demonstrates the ways in which the rhetoric of individual uplift via education, because education will promote human capital and be a kind of solution for economic inequality, the centering of education there means that people rejecting that vision are also, in a sense, rejecting education, rejecting the notion that higher education is how you get ahead. And there's some irony to that, I think, is is particularly powerful in this moment where, in many ways, education does help you get ahead, right? But the overselling of that has led to a number of folks just outright rejecting it. One of the things that Democrats, especially in the 80s and 90s, and Republicans get into this act too, but it's primarily led by Democrats. They push this idea that like, look, there's nothing we can do for working people in the country anymore. The economy is global. You know, we can't be protecting industries, although countries like Germany are doing it, right? So it would have totally been possible. And, and people like Robert Reich were actually arguing for that in the early 80s. But this idea that, you know, you just kind of throw up your hands and we can't do anything except give people education and, and have them hope for the best. It's also tied to the idea that geography and community are not important. And so one of the things that I talk about in the book is kind of the phenomenon of Richard Florida and the rise of the creative class in the early 2000s. When Florida talks about the creative class, he, he's basically just talking about people with college degrees. And he says, the future of this country is people with college degrees, creative class types in urban areas, and we need to essentially bring more people into the creative class. And you're sort of hopelessly clinging to the past if you're thinking about things like community, especially in rural areas and you know manufacturing and, and these kinds of jobs. The, I was going to say implicit, but actually explicit argument there is, the only path you have is to be willing to go where the job is, retrain yourself, and essentially just give up on the idea of any kind of community. In other words, it wasn't just that Democrats were talking more and more about education as a policy fix. They really didn't seem to have anything else to offer. John argues that this overselling of education has had profound political consequences. Americans have been told for decades now that they should, one, go to college, and two, go where the jobs are. And if you don't, well, the message you've been hearing from politicians sounds a lot like this. We don't have anything for you. You either move out of where you are if there's no jobs there, go get the right education, 
or there's literally nothing for you. Now, if you're in, in that scenario, maybe your rational choice is, all right, let's figure out how we can get our, our kids into college so they have a chance at this. But, you know, those people are often economically marginal. At the same time that was happening, you also have states cutting higher education budgets. And so students are having to take out more loans. They're not seeing a future for them that is easy for them to go down that path. But you're also saying to all those people who are unwilling to move or go to college that you just kind of deserve it if you don't have economic opportunity. If I'm a voter, why would I vote for a politician that said that? That makes no sense. When you think about the trajectory the Republican Party has gone now with, obviously, Trump in Wisconsin, one of the precursors was Scott Walker, who really kind of pioneered this strategy before Trump, you know, even kind of got into it. And of course, DeSantis in Florida, they're able to kind of exploit that because there hasn't really been much of an argument for how to help people without college degrees for quite some time in our mainstream politics. In 2016, Katherine Kramer, who's a political science professor at the University of Wisconsin, came out with a book called The Politics of Resentment, Rural Consciousness in Wisconsin and the Rise of Scott Walker. It was eye-opening, and John says that it really influenced his thinking about the way conservatives both sow resentment and then make use of it. The current culture warring around higher ed is a perfect example of this and something John has experienced firsthand class that I teach here at UW-Green Bay called Mentoring for Equity and Inclusion was just featured as the example of political indoctrination for future teachers in the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberties, I guess they're calling it a report, that they put out last summer. So I've kind of been in the middle of some of this. These reactionary Republican politicians, I think for the most part, there may be some exceptions, but for the most part, Republicans around this issue are operating in bad faith. They know that they can exploit this. They know that they can exploit that wedge, even whether it's consciously or subconsciously, they just get positive reinforcement for it in Republican circles, right? I mean, you see that with Ron DeSantis, for example, and Scott Walker, of course, did the same thing. But, you know, they they make parents, I should say, of kids who are in these sorts of situations who are thinking about whether to send their kids to college or not. They're thinking about these things and all of the bad faith conversations about things like critical race theory and LGBTQ rights and the supposed indoctrination that, that university professors are doing feed right into that, right? Because it seems like, you know, they're making a kind of seamless argument that like your kid is going to move away they're going to become something different, even if they're completely misrepresenting these things that we're actually teaching, which probably most of those parents actually agree with. It's the way these, these ideas are being distorted by reactionary politicians who are looking for that wedge. We've talked so far about the impact of the education myth on the economy and on people's livelihoods. And we've talked about the way that this tilt towards the education myth that we really see reach its kind of apotheosis uh, in the Clinton era. We've seen the impact of that on national politics and the Democratic Party. But one of the things you talk about in the book is the impact it has on schools and the thing we think that public education is good for, and not just higher education, but K-12 education. And one of the things that Jennifer and I have talked about on this show repeatedly as a theme is the narrowing of the vision of what education is for, that you go from this pretty expansive vision in the early 20th century, right? That education, sure, will maybe help you get ahead in the economy, 
but also is very much about preparation for citizenship, for life in a democracy, that it's also about just preparing you to lead a good life, a rich and varied life. And I would just love to hear you talk a little bit more about the ways in which our understanding of the value of education has really been winnowed down and the ways that that is a direct result of this narrow focus on human capital. You know, you go to school in order to acquire job-ready skills. And by the way, that not only narrows our vision of education, but it narrows our understanding of who should be paying for this, right? Of who benefits from education. But Because if the only beneficiary is the individual in the form of human capital, then why the heck are we paying for it with our tax dollars, right? Suddenly the idea of a voucher makes a lot more sense. Listen, if you're in poverty, we'll give you a little bit to get started. But otherwise, you bear the cost yourself and go attend a private school. Let's get rid of public education. I could talk for a very long time, I won't, but I could talk for a very long time about how for the vast majority of American history, whether you know social reformers, politicians, social activists were pushing for a vision of, of public education that, that really wasn't about economic opportunity much at all, right? It was about a lot of other things, everything from you know Thomas Jefferson pushing for helping new citizens in a democracy in the 1770s. Of course, important caveat that he excluded African-Americans and Native Americans, he's talking about white people but a broader circle of people being educated to ensure democracy, all the way through African-American freedmen and women after the Civil War and Reconstruction who were pushing for schools. But as James Anderson writes in the book, The Education of Blacks in the South, we're really pushing for this because of its connection to building citizenship and, and social and, and political infrastructure for African-Americans. It wasn't really about jobs training at all. That's deeply embedded. I mean, you can take that through FDR's second Bill of Rights in 1944, where education comes after all of the other rights to economic security through the Truman Commission in 1947, which argues for two years of tuition-free education, but for everybody, but it has nothing to do with job training. In fact, the, the Truman Commission actually kind of upbraids citizens for thinking about education, higher education, its connection to job training and says, no, this should be about citizenship. So that's deeply woven in American society. In other words, our view that education is primarily about the acquisition and development of human capital is an historical outlier. And when it took hold, it ushered in the era of education reform. I think where this really becomes important in terms of the education reform movement is with a nation at risk in 1983. There's a really interesting story there because Department of Education was created in the late 70s under Carter. Reagan gets elected, and one of the things he wanted to do was he wanted to eliminate the Department of Education, right? Too much government. And his own education secretary, this like veteran school administrator named Terrell Bell, who basically disagreed with Reagan on a lot of things, kind of went around him and convened this national commission on... But what's fascinating about it is they make this argument that with all of the economic turmoil that exists, right, you've got factories closing down, not just on their revolution, it's because corporations are moving those factories to places where they can get cheaper labor, but unemployment, right, uh, 1983 is the Reagan recession. And the argument that a nation at risk makes is that the school system is somehow responsible for this because test scores are declining. Now, empirical evidence shows that actually probably education outcomes were getting, they were at least neutral, but probably getting better in the late 70s and early 80s. But the argument of a nation at risk is, no, it's the school system. And to, to create good jobs moving forward, we have to educate people properly. 
And as that notion that education equals economic opportunity crystallized into something like bipartisan common sense, the stakes for schools and the people who work in them just kept getting higher. You know, you have all kinds of politicians after that saying, I'm the education governor, I'm the education president. And it's everything from Clinton as governor of Arkansas pushing for new tests for teachers because the idea is teachers weren't teaching properly. And several decades of this leading all the way up to No Child Left Behind in 2001, where really the explicit argument for No Child Left Behind is that schools need to be improved to help the nation's workforce, to give people more economic opportunity. I've read the debates in the congressional record about this. You will not find anything more bipartisan in the last like 30 or 40 years than that. Everybody's like, well, of course education is the key to economic opportunity. So if that's the case, and education is responsible for economic opportunity, well, boy, then teachers really need to be held accountable for that, right? Because your kid's future, their their entire economic opportunity is completely connected to how what kind of education they get, not whether they grow up in a place where there's no jobs, not whether they're a victim of racial discrimination, not whether it's going to be difficult for them to form a union, none of those things, just education. So if that's the case, then why wouldn't we blame teachers for basically not ensuring widespread economic opportunity for their students? And as economic inequality keeps increasing, well, then it must be teachers who are responsible. So while John's book is about the history of an idea, it's also the story of an increasingly embattled profession. Because the more we regard teachers as the sole gatekeepers to economic success, the bigger the consequences when they fall short. So what do we have to do as a society? Well, we have to discipline them. We have to, as the Obama administration did, push to have their performance evaluations tied to their student test scores because they should be doing better. We have to narrow the curriculum. We have to you know, make sure that students are only doing things like math and reading because those are going to be the things that get them jobs. We can't invest in art. We can't invest in health and all these different things. So in that sense, you can draw a direct line from the education myth to the teacher shortage we have in this state because you know it's in becoming increasingly difficult for people to want to go into that profession when they're surveilled and blamed for all these different things that are out of their control and losing the discretion to be able to teach the things that I've started my career as a, as a K-12 teacher, all of the things that we were excited to teach about, to have the professional discretion to really be able to teach things that, that connect with our students. Those things are, are increasingly being diminished because of the education myth. And I just want to add on that teachers are getting attacked from both sides here. And you do a really nice job of showing that in the book, you know, coupled with what you were just talking about there, John, about attacks from the center left, right, from historical allies in the Democratic Party who are making the case that educators are falling down on the job of creating the kind of human capital that will allow young people to become successful adults in the economy. They also are getting attacked on the right, as we were talking about earlier, and as is shown in the book, from people who have been alienated from education, right? And who have come to believe that education is dominated by elites, that the game is rigged, that the left has seized education and used it as a kind of weapon against ordinary folks, particularly the white working class, especially in rural areas as a way of blaming them for their own poverty. And so in that sense, 
the education myth really not only helps explain the embattled position of teachers vis-a-vis -vis things like test-based accountability or value-added measures of teacher performance, but also the embattled position of teachers vis-a-vis -vis the current culture war. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I mean, I I think you, you described that beautifully. I, the one thing I would add to that is, as you were saying earlier, the education myth is something that allows for widespread economic opportunity without like any victims or without changing anything. You didn't say victims, but you know, that was kind of the implication. I guess really the the one victim of this, the tough choices are really kind of directed on teachers, right? They're they're aimed at teachers. And so teachers in many ways really are probably ironically, because you know, education is central to this argument, but are, are ironically probably the biggest victims of the education myth, if you think about it that way. No, at this point, I know just what you're thinking. The Education Myth sounds like a really great book. And Jack really does have a lot of questions. But you also want to know what we're supposed to do about all of this. And that's where John's book is so important. You see, because our narrow understanding of education as being about human capital development is relatively recent, we don't have to go back that far to find a time when people thought about education really differently. When we talk about education as not being reducible to economic opportunity, that most Americans for the first 150 years of American history didn't see education in terms of economic opportunity. Of course, there were some people who made that argument, education reformers, et cetera. What I really mean by that, though, is that in particular, after the Civil War and when this massive level of inequality emerged during the Gilded Age and the economic insecurity of so many Americans who were selling their wages in the marketplace, the primary way that working people sought to make their lives better was through other kinds of reforms, not really education. If they talked about education, it was to empower future generations of citizens. And this was for working people too. It was unionizing. It was collectively bargaining. It was reform laws like, you know, maximum hour laws that in many cases were overturned by the Supreme Court, uh, but minimum wage laws, unemployment compensation, these kinds of things. And the New Deal really crystallizes about 50 years of those movements and brings them into the, I argue, the sort of central premise of American politics. The New Deal represented a realignment in American politics. It was the first time that the government really understood its central purpose as ensuring the economic security of all Americans. This is the period when workers get the right to form unions and go on strike. It's when we got Social Security, which has economic security right in the name of the act that created it. John points out that none of these were just ideas that FDR came up with, but responses to what workers had been demanding for decades. But it's an FDR proposal that you might not have heard about that John wants us to revisit. By the end of FDR's administration during World War II, he pushes for an economic bill of rights. If you haven't read the speech, people should absolutely read this. This is a fundamentally important piece of American political theory because what he says is, We've got the Bill of Rights in that is appended to the original version of the Constitution, which guarantees freedom for civil liberties. But he says, things have changed dramatically since the founding of the country, and we need a new economic Bill of Rights because these are the things that we actually need to ensure life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the promise and the declaration. He makes this argument very clearly. And of the rights, the first is the right to a job, okay? Which, by the way, that, that idea of government supporting the right to a job pulled at like 75% in the 1940s. 
and then goes through, you know, housing, healthcare, all these other things that many of us would agree are necessary. We might add a couple more today, but basically we'd probably say this is a pretty good list of rights. Education is at the end. I think that order is very intentional because it wasn't the thing that was going to enable economic security. John says that one of the questions he often gets when he talks about the education myth is whether he's anti-education. Insert something snarky here about the fact that he's a professor, you get where this is going, and his answer is an emphatic no. Because the larger argument John is making is that if we want public education to survive and thrive, we have to talk about it differently. To talk about education properly We have to situate it in the bigger conversation about economic security. We have to. We have to stop talking about education as if it is solely responsible or even primarily responsible for economic opportunity. Doesn't mean there's not a connection there, but we have to stop talking about it that way. And it's and it's hard because we've been told that for so long that there's like this kind of automatic thing that happens. Well, of course, education is a great equalizer, right? You hear this all the time. Now, I am a huge fan of Danielle Allen's work, political theorist from Harvard that probably some of your listeners know about. And and the way she talks about education, she makes the argument that, yes, education can be a great equalizer, but not for the reasons that people are typically thinking. The way education can be a great equalizer is because it empowers people. If it's done properly, it enables people to participate in a democracy, but not in a thin sense, right? Not in the sense that's like, hey, you'd learn about the issues and you go out and vote for somebody in a party, but it helps young people to understand their surroundings and frankly, to organize and advocate for the kind of world that they all want. And perhaps no one needs to hear this message more right now than Democrats who are running for office. John says they need to be crystal clear about why we have public schools and what the school culture wars are really about. What the right wants is a future in which we have no common society. You, you, you both talk about that in your book, right? That's, that's why they want to bust public schools so much. They want to have a society where we don't know how to talk to each other. We don't know how to empower each other. Everybody feels little and disempowered and like they can't do anything because that maintains all the hierarchies that exist. Our education system is one that is there for everybody and teaches every young person how to be a part of the world and advocate for themselves and organize to make their world better. And we're talking about things like equity and inclusion and all these really important concepts that what our education system can do is actually help students have the tools to understand that world and act in it and make our country the kind of multiracial democracy that it deserves to be. And we're not going to let the right divide us. That's what Democrats need to say about education. It is worth fighting for and we have to fight for it. That was John Shelton, the author of a terrific new book, The Education Myth, How Human Capital Trumps Social Democracy. We obviously loved it, and we think you will too. And Jack and I will be right back to remember a time when college was for all, with a little assist from former First Lady Michelle Obama. We'll also be revealing the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon supporters. Here's a hint, the war on merit. If this intrigues you, just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast to become a supporter. (laughs) 
So I think one of the really amazing things about both reading John's book and talking to him was that we are, we're in this moment where things are moving really quickly. Like there was just a big story in the New York Times about how Biden is now, you know, trying to tell people, hey, you don't have to get a college degree. And, um, and it was really like, it was amazing just how sort of weird that that felt. And they mentioned in the piece that that the Obamas, who we know were, you know, very big on going to college, that at one point Michelle Obama actually recorded a video. And just to take us down memory lane, I'm gonna play a clip for of of that for you right now, Jack. What are you gonna do after high school? Hmm. I don't know, just hang out, I guess. Hang out? Your future is hazy, trying to figure it out. Asking why I'm here, so you questioning doubt. It's your choice, so voice it. Whole world your oyster. Can't be dropping the ball when your future's not in the toilet. Telescope and stay focused. Make a mark and get noticed. Get the degree, thermostat, help me out, float it. If you want to fly jets, you should go to college. Reach high and cash checks, fill your head with knowledge. If you want to watch pain, don't go to college. But for everything else, you should go to college. Well, Jack, I could not help but notice that you were kind of bouncing along to that catchy tune. And because we are recording the video from this, people who join the Diamond Society will actually have access to that. And then I'll do the choreography with them afterwards. But uh, on a serious note, I do think that that is an excellent example of the fact that the things that we believe and accept about the world and what's natural and the way it should be are very much shaped by the culture in which we are living, right? By the the kind of atmosphere and environment of ideas that is shaping our assumptions and beliefs and what we think is our own self-determined view about the world is not just ours, right? It belongs to the broader culture. And so what may not have seemed strange a decade ago is now starting to feel a little weird. I think you're so right. And I also feel like, you know, it's important to note that, you know, not everyone is moving out of this kind of cultural moment. And I'm thinking very much about affluent parents who are intent on getting their kids into the best possible college. I have a friend where I live. She comes here during the summer when we play tennis together. And she is a counselor for getting your kid into the best college. And so whenever we're together, you know, I want to hear the stories. And and it really, like, it'll be that that story that I referenced in the New York Times about Biden trying to trying to widen the definition of what of what constitutes success. I can not imagine a group that that argument would be received with less enthusiasm than affluent parents. And so I want us to actually talk about that in the weeds, Jack, because we have not paid much attention to, wait for it, the war on merit. (laughs) Sure. Before we get dragged into the weeds, I will just make the observation that, you know, for, for a particular social class, education remains the dominant, culturally accepted way of reproducing class status. And so, you know, for folks who are in the middle class or upper middle class, 
whose position is in some ways insecure, right? They are far more likely to slip out of the middle class than, let's say, the affluent are. And their expectations are often much higher than folks from the working class, that they exist in many ways within their own kind of subculture. And so my comment a moment ago about, you know, cultures changing and our ideas changing, of course, has to be caveated with the note that there are cultures within cultures. And that's definitely something that we're seeing here with regard to people's understanding of the role of college and what it can do for your lives. Okay, Jennifer, you can take us kicking and screaming, or I'll be kicking and screaming, but you can drag us behind the paywall now. Well, I can imagine people listening to this thinking, well, why would I need to become a Patreon supporter? He just he just went and blurted it all out right there. <laughs> no, I have so like, many more smart things to say. Exactly. You wouldn't believe it. And, <laughs> no, and one no, of they, would, they would believe it. <laughs> and one of Jack's very favorite kinds of in the weed segment we do is when I just sort of spring something on him and say, you know, I'd be really interested to hear what you have to say about this. So if you want to hear about the quote unquote war on merit, then follow us into the weeds. It's a special area we have for our Patreon supporters. And you can just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast to become a supporter. If you send just a few dollars our way each month, you get things like a custom reading list. You get a copy of our paperback book, A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, if you subscribe at the $10 a month level. And everybody gets to come along with us into the weeds. <laughs> And for those whose journeys will be ending here, thank you for being a member of this democratic community. Thanks for listening, for sharing your favorite episode or the latest episode, making sure you're a subscriber, giving us a review, doing all the things that it takes to keep the show thriving. Thank you for that. And we'll see you soon. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. <laughs>